This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 467th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most talented and influential singer-songwriters of the last 50 years. An Oscar and Tony winner, he is also a 2019 Lifetime Achievement Award Grammy winner and 2002 inductee into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as part of the band for which he was principal songwriter, lead singer, and guitarist from its formation in 1975 through its breakup in 1991, Talking Heads, which is behind two selections on Rolling Stone's 2020 list of the 500 greatest albums of all time, number 364, More Songs About Buildings and Food, and number 39, Remain in Light, and two selections on Rolling Stone's 2021 list of the 500 greatest songs of all time, number 123, This Must Be the Place, Naive Melody, and number 28, once in a lifetime. He has been described by the New York Times as, quote, an underground icon who danced across genres as if they were all part of one vast amplified stage, close quote, and someone who, quote, has spent his whole career blurring the distinction between pop culture and highbrow art, close quote. And talking heads have been called by the same publication, quote, the most consistently adventurous band to have emerged from rock's new wave of the mid-1970s and a groundbreaking ensemble with a knack for hitching off-kilter lyrics to postmodern beats, close quote. Also noting that they, quote, dissolve the barriers between disco and rock, conceptual art, and dance pop, close quote. While Time Magazine declared that they, quote, made music that examined some of the oddest, spookiest manifestations of modern emotional life, sang songs that turned grim tidings into deadpan jokes and disaffection into disarming social parables, close quote, while noting that his lyrics, quote, played four-wall handball with anime and, floating all around the band's cunning and enterprising rhythms, moved the heads past punk and over the crest of rock's new wave into a forefront they had sharpened up for themselves. The heads were a prominent part of a creative community that kicked avant-garde into a single swift stream. They adopted their thematic boldness from artists and their music inventiveness from sources as diverse as Philip Glass and James Brown. They started out in the punk New Wave era, but outlasted and outclassed it, close quote. I'm talking, of course, about David Byrne. Over the course of our conversation at the Los Angeles offices of A24, the 70-year-old and I discussed the origin and dissolution of Talking Heads and the stories behind some of their most celebrated tunes, the musical influences from abroad that have shaped his solo work ever since, the Oscar-contending original song, This Is a Life, that he co-wrote with Mitzi and Ryan Lott for the A24 film Everything Everywhere All at Once, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. David, thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor to have you on the podcast. And on this podcast, we always begin by asking our guests where they were born and raised and what their parents did for a living. Oh, that's nice. I was born in Scotland 
And then my family, family moves to Canada and eventually to Baltimore when I was about seven or eight. And so I did most of my growing up in suburban Baltimore uh, until I went to college. Yes. Now, growing up, how big a role did music play in your household, whether it was listening to it or making it? How did that uh, factor into things? Oh, it had a huge influence. Uh, my parents didn't play instruments, but I remember at, at certain points they played rec. They listened to records, uh, maybe like Scottish folk music or American folk music, like Woody Guthrie or Pete Seeger. Um, and then they'd sometimes listen to classical music like Mozart or something like that. Uh, some of it stuck with me. Mm -hmm. Certainly, the um, things like Woody Guthrie and. Pete Seeger and those songs, I can still remember those songs. Mm -hmm. Woody Guthrie did a record of children's songs that I can kind of remember. But it seemed like uh, another world. And then, of course, at some point in early adolescence, I had a little transistor radio, which is, um, for those of you who <laughs> don't know what those are, they're about the size of a pack of cigarettes. Um, they were... The, the, the music quality, the sound quality was probably less than your phone, <laughs> but that was a lot of people's introduction to pop music in different ways. And so, I, like anyone else, I tuned into the radio and heard stuff and it kind of blew my mind and I realized, oh, there's there's another world out there. There's well, another world and it's, it's the world... I want to know more about this. I don't know if this was just to give an example, but in another interview, you'd said that Mr. Tambourine Man, which was covered by the birds, including past guests of this podcast, David Crosby, uh, that that one kind of made you, it was, you said it was like a past, let me find the exact phrase, like a little telegraph from someplace else. You said, if, like, kind of calling you to get out of Baltimore. Yes. It was like a... A message you could hear it in the in the sound of the record, not even in the words, which were very mysterious. And I thought, what what does this mean? It's this is some kind of coded language. I don't know what they're saying, but it's really exciting. It's obviously speaking to my generation and the people maybe a little bit older than me, uh, and they belong to another world that. I'm not in contact with here in the suburbs. <laughs> and now, up to that point, though, had you done any making of music yourself? I, I'd read one thing where your mother said that at the age of 15, you went to something in Montreal that kind of blew your mind as well. Some, not too many years after that, yes. When I was in junior high, high school, yes, I taught myself how to play guitar. My my dad had a little reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder as Oddly enough, people sometimes yes. had those then, <laughs> and I would record. He modified it so so that I could record what's called sound on sound, uh, which is something that Les Paul gets credit for, credit for inventing, mm -hmm. where you could kind of play along with yourself, and it would merge what was on the tape with what your your performance, and then you'd get. The other thing, in the process of doing that, you basically destroyed what was <laughs> on the tape before. So you only had one chance to do it. But it was still, wow, yeah. I can do this. So I was doing that. By that 
point, friends from school and I, we, we would trade trade records the way people do, uh, vinyl. Mm-hmm. And you'd go over to someone's house and you'd bring your latest record find and go, listen to this, listen to this. You have to know about this. At some point, yes, my parents, probably my parents' sister and I, went to, I think it was called Expo 65, maybe, in Montreal. It was a, what was, they had these things called World's Fairs. Mm -hmm. And not so much musically, but kind of visually and and conceptually, it kind of blew my mind. Uh, There was these amazing things in the Czech Pavilion where they had a kind of film where the audience could decide, like, choose your own adventure. The audience could had buttons on the chairs that you could say, you know, they'd pause the film and go, okay, (laughs) should it go this way or that way? (laughs) And then there was another thing where there was this multi-layered slide projection thing. There were kind of, I remember there were like films where it was like 360 all all around you, those kinds of things. It was just like this amazing uh, world of possibilities yeah. that kind of loomed in front of you and go, wow, all these things. Oh, there's there's all these things that are possible that you can think of, not in the ways that we normally do, but right. there's all kinds of other ways of doing things. Experimental, yeah. yeah. Um, now, what was Revelation? Revelation was a, a band I had probably in, this might have been junior high, junior high maybe. Yes, quite an ambitious name for a band and we basically we basically just did cover songs of other whatever stuff was on the radio but that was really the first time you were part of a band and working with other musicians yes the first time i was part of a band working with other musicians i'm pretty sure i was not the singer but yeah that was exciting i remembered uh, that of course ended after a while sure and so then i kind of went off on my own and i I remember playing kind of the contemporary rock songs at folk clubs oh. on an acoustic guitar or ukulele or violin instruments I had around the house. And we tend to forget that audiences were really segregated in their silos, uh, kind of the way they often are now. That This is not an entirely new thing. The The folk audience did not listen to rock and roll. They thought this that was like <laughs> cheap commercialism. Right. A lot of it was, mm-hmm. but they thought they just wrote it all off. Right. And yet, the, of course, there was some very kind of innovative and literate uh, rock writers and that continued to evolve. And I guess that was the whole Dylan thing. Right? Yeah, it was Dylan and then... Yeah, all sorts of other people doing things. And you just thought, no, 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 there's a lot to this. Uh, It's not just um, I want to hold your hand. There's a lot of other stuff going on. And so I started playing some of those songs to a folk audience, and they were like, wow, that's a good song. Who? Where does that come from? Uh, So that was some... Blurring the lines, yeah. Yeah. So you eventually, early 70s, go off to two art schools, right? Start at each... First, I believe was was RISD first, or was Maryland? Yeah, RISD was first. Okay, I went to an art school in Rhode, Rhode Island. Uh, left there, went to an art school in, in Baltimore, mm-hmm. um, 
and then hitchhiked around the country. Hitchhiking was a, th a thing you could do then. Yeah, right. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know. Not anybody. recommended today. Yeah, I don't know anybody who would hitchhike now, <laughs> but you could do it. You could get, uh, you could go all over the country. So I did that. And after a while, I ended up back in Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was a fun scene. Yep. There were people who had graduated from the school who had bands and were doing cool art. and uh, so, so I went back there and just started hanging out. And that's when I met some of the uh, folks who would eventually be part of Talking Heads. Well, I, I wondered if I could ask you to break it down a little bit because I heard it all kind of crazily began with uh, a film for someone else about running over their girlfriend or something <laughs> wasn't was that the first is that the first thing you worked on with Chris France? I don't remember that. I could it could be you know that there's that. inaccurate info, but basically the way it was here's here's the this was from Time Magazine quote France had fantasized about forming a rock band. He and Byrne provided music for a film a friend was making. France recalls about his girlfriend being run over by a car. The way Weymouth remembers it, by the end of the session, Chris said to David, because, you know, David didn't talk very much, look, let's start a band at Click, close quote. Does that, does that compart with... I don't remember the music for the film, yeah. but I remember Chris being uh, the one who, su who suggested, let's, let's make a band. Let's do a band. And I think, we, I think we thought we would just, again, maybe perform some cool songs by other people that we liked, but mm -hmm. yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't my idea, but I mean, uh, well, even before you got a, a fourth, was the band already named what it, how did it come to be named what it was? It was named the Artistics, um, which I think also came from Chris. Mm -hmm. And, um, I think that was supposed to be like a, a tongue in cheek reference to us being all around the art school right, scene. Right. And uh, at some point during that, we lasted, I don't know, a year or so. And at some point I started writing songs for us to learn and play. And those songs stayed, stayed there was Psycho Killer, there was one called Warning Sign. Uh, there might have been a couple of others. There was just like the beginning, the early stuff. It was fun, fun to do. Um, it basically proved to me that I could write a song. There was not that, oh, I can do this. I well, that's what's this. so funny to me because when I was reading about the that period and, and about Psycho Killer, like you're saying, it sounds like you were kind of just feeling it out. I guess, was it originally going to be a folk song? I thought of it as, um, yeah, I, I when I was thinking of it, I thought, oh, this is kind of like, uh, well, let's say, going back to that time, I was thinking... It's be like if Randy Newman did a collaboration with Alice Cooper. <laughs> Not that that would happen, but right. <laughs> that's what I was imagining. Well, now, at a certain point, I wondered if I w I've read different conflicting accounts of when and how you guys wound up with your fourth. Jerry, how did that, I guess you realized you needed a or wanted a second guitarist? By that point... We'd all gravitated to New York. Chris and Tina kind of, I think they finished school. So I went to New York earlier. I, you know, crashed on the floor of somebody who had a loft. Um, 
on the outskirts of Soho near the Bowery. Mm -hmm. And they eventually gravitated to the town. Uh, and well, and I would continue to kind of write stuff. I don't know. I had no idea what I was going to do with it, but it, you know, it was just something <laughs> right. you did. It was fun. And well, you had a day job, right? You were doing other things to pay the bills. Uh, yeah, I had eventually had a day job. Um, I was a theater usher for a while, which to me, having just moved to New York, that was incredibly exciting. I got to watch movies over and over and over again because mm -hmm. I, I stood at. The, there was no uh, doors between the ticket mm -hmm. taker, that was me, and the film. So I could kind of turn around and watch the movie. And some of the movies were bared watching over and over again. I remember uh, Young Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Every time you watched it, you'd see something different, and it was wonderful. It was California Split, which, which was an Altman movie. Yep. That had... All the overlapping dialogue and everything that he was doing then, it was just like, whoa, whoa, what is, there's so much going on here. Uh, and then there'd be other movies like, um, what well, might have been like Airport 75 or something like uh, Airplane, 70, something <laughs> like that. And it was just like, no, this uh, this has no depth to it whatsoever. <laughs> but I, yeah, I watched it once and I go, that's, that's, that's enough. It, that's enough. <laughs> well, that period, so you're, the movies you're talking about kind of confirm, we're talking... 74 into 75 as the four of you are coming together, but not yet with a record deal right until oh, 76. No, no. Yeah, yeah. We didn't have a record deal. We were just getting together and playing. We played, uh, we auditioned at CBGB's, mm -hmm. played some shows, and I don't know when exactly, but after, you know, we played quite a few shows as a trio. Mm -hmm. And then eventually we thought, oh, wouldn't it be good to just have one more person if we had somebody who could play maybe some keyboards and maybe a guitar sometimes, that kind of thing. And we were big fans of uh, this group, the Modern Lovers out of Boston, Jonathan Richmond's group. And they had fallen apart. And so we reached out to their keyboard player who also played guitar, Jerry, and said, Jerry, would you, would you like to join our band? Uh, Jerry was very wary He'd just been through what was for him a terrible experience. You know, he had his hopes up that they were getting courted by major labels and the modern lovers were going to, he, he saw a career in front of him. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it just crumbled. And he thought, I do not want to go through that again. Yeah. So he said, um, I'll join you for like a few songs on a few dates, which he did. And I, I guess I guess it worked out. I guess he had a good time because eventually he decided, yeah, yeah, I'll give it a try with you guys. And so that record deal with Cy Records is 76. And I wonder, do you remember the first time you heard yourself on the radio? No, I don't remember. It, didn't make a, it wouldn't have made a huge impression. Now, I guess after the first album, the, the, the next important collaborator to enter the picture would have been Brian Eno, right? Mm -hmm. That's after the first one. Then you guys do three Talking Heads together and three solo, that I believe, that you did together after that. Why do you think you guys clicked to the extent that you did? Oh, with Brian Eno? Yeah. Uh, in the same way that the band itself got together because we had similar musical tastes, it wasn't like we were all like the greatest players. Some of us were still learning how to play, but we all were friends. 
we had similar tastes, uh, and so we we liked hanging out and listening to music and doing all that. And this was a similar thing with Brian. We we sort of became friends and liked to talk about not just music but all sorts of things, uh, science and whatever else. Mm-hmm. So in the same way that we got together because we were friends, we started connecting with him because he became friends with us. And gradually, it wasn't right away, but gradually we came to him and said, hey, do you want to do our next record? Now, you have talked about something. I wonder if you can explain to listeners, because I was certainly not familiar with this before. What is incomplete recording? Incomplete recording? I have no idea what that is. No? Is this something where I'd seen that the band would lay down basic tracks and then you would essentially improvise? Is that the... Oh, that kind of thing. Uh, Certainly not at first. At first we had songs written, but at some point, as happens with every musical act who records their own material and then goes out on the road and performs it, there comes a point where you you come back from a tour and you you don't have any new stuff. (laughs) You have to come up with something. So you either have to take a little break to write or uh, I think Brian encouraged us to, at some point, to just go in the studio and, and jam and kind of improvise. We, we did that uh, in a rehearsal loft. And I remember uh, on quite a number of the songs, um, or what became songs, sometimes I'd improvise a kind of melody, uh, but just, just singing gibberish, nonsense words. Which I discovered is not that unusual. I mean, mm-hmm. I heard that Paul McCartney would do yeah. the same thing. Yeah. Uh, and then you you find words that kind of fit the feeling, fit the kind of vowels and consonants and whatever that seem to go with that melody. You find those. And sometimes you, they make, uh, they can actually make perfect sense. And sometimes they can be a little bit more stream of consciousness. Do you remember but, an example of a song where that, is how the song was born. Oh, that. yeah, yeah. Plenty of them. Plenty of them. Um, ones that people know, I think, really well. Burning Down the House is like that. Naive Melody, This Must Be the Place, mm-hmm. that was like that. Um, very different vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, songs, what other, like, I think Life During Wartime might have been like that, where it's basically just a groove. Mm-hmm. Uh, with like one chord change, <laughs> and uh, so I just thought, okay, I, I'll make. But you liked that way of it turned out to be a way you liked working with this uh, kind of having you know the way what we've called incomplete recording here. Yeah, it it worked out fine. I mean, at least for a while, it was not the only way of working. Yeah, it wasn't like this is what I'm going to do forever and ever. But I thought, oh, this is a a new way of working for us, uh, and it works. And you the you the results were a little bit different. They tend to be a little bit more kind of groove oriented because you're kind of you're, you're kind of coming up with this groove, and it tends not to be as harmonically complex. You're not going to just jam and do a whole bunch of chord changes because that's unlikely uh, that everyone will follow along and, and get it. But uh, I mean, jazz players can do that, but we wouldn't do that. So that's how it worked for us. And, yeah. And I discovered, oh, I could write write words and vocal melodies after. 
would it be possible for me to mention a few of the songs that people love most from that era and just ask you if there's anything that comes immediately to mind about either the origin of the song or the way it was received or just, you know, a few of oh, those? Oh, sure. Thank sure. you. So you mentioned Once in a Lifetime. People love that. What, what was the story there? That was a song where we jammed, improvised a kind of groove with us playing different things. We went in the studio, recorded basically the jam, maybe added some overdubs to that, which was sounding pretty good. Mm. And the overdubs kind of changed the, the, the kind of emphasis of it a little bit. That kind of watery sound was added as an overdub. Uh, I remember Jerry had an early sequencer that helped create that. Mm. So uh, we had that and then it became my job to go take those recordings, cassettes of them or whatever, take them home and try and come up with melodies and things mm. for it. Uh, which on that particular particular one, I'd been listening to some radio preachers and Brian and I used the voice of radio preachers on uh, the record we did together, uh, My Life in the Bush of Ghosts. And I was listening to radio preachers and then I just adopted the persona mm. in my Nuts. Loft where I lived and just adopted the persona of a preacher and kind of ranted the verses. Yeah. And just as soon as I came up with a phrase I liked, I'd write it down. I'd just keep going and going, you know, going around the, the kitchen table <laughs> and doing that. <laughs> There's nobody else there. <laughs> Elmer Gantry style. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> nobody else there, so I could kind of do that. Nice. Didn't have a, a, a chorus. Brian came up with a chorus melody. Not the words, but it came up with a melody. And it worked, and I liked it, so I eventually wrote words to that that were, I thought, uh, kind of an, an answer or complementary to the kind of rant of yeah. the verses. Amazing. Well, here's another one for you. I think it was the highest charting song the band ever had, reaching number nine, Burning Down the House. You mentioned a little bit about how that came together, but just would you ever have imagined that that would be the one that maybe more than any other would, would click? No. I had no idea what songs were going to be popular. I had no idea. So I remember, again, like the other one, that, this, that emerged from a jam where I think we had maybe like... Four, four or five chords or something like that that we would just repeat like a loop. Loops didn't exist then, but we played it the same kind of four bars or whatever over and over again like it was a loop. We recorded that. Um, I would improvise, again, nonsense syllables. And was out here at one point and heard uh, Parliament Funkadelic did it club date. There was a club over by the, on I think Santa Monica over by the, it was called, right by the Tropicana Motel or whatever. Mm -hmm. There was a club over there and they played this club and at one point there was like a, a chant that went up 
It was not part of a song. It was just chant went up, like burning down the house, burning down the house. And I thought, that is a song. <laughs> um, they're not using it as a song. Hey. But I thought, oh, I think I can use that as the hook of a song. That's great. I loved the, what it felt like. So, that yeah. That. Well, there's more. I think uh, I remember once in a lifetime. Yeah. When it came out, the rock stations thought it was too funky hmm. for for rock stations. So I was told. Now, now can you go figure. But really? <laughs> yes. But then that was told that no, no, no. It's 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 not doesn't really fit in with the rock format. And R&B stations didn't want to play it because it was probably a bunch of white kids and sounded, didn't quite fit in there either. So it kind of fell through the cracks as far as radio formats. Yeah, so, you know, well, what do we do? We're going to still play it live, play, those, play all this stuff live. I remember I did a video. I worked with Tony Basil out here, did a video for that. MTV was just starting. So they were anything that was halfway decent. If you gave it to them, they'd start playing it. Uh, they, didn't, they needed right, content. content. They yeah. needed content bad. So they started playing that, and they played it a lot, along with, you know, a few other people. Right. And that, to my way of thinking, is what drew the attention to that song. Now, what role do you think music videos played in the, in the development of your guys' following? Because it seems like... There was a, a maybe from your experience with with art and experimental stuff prior to or separate from music. I mean, just the visuals that you always brought to things, whether it's the oversized suits or kind of deadpan stuff. I mean, do you think that that how important were were music videos for you guys? It worked out pretty well for us. Yeah, for me personally, it was like a return to art school. It's like. Oh, all that stuff that, uh, all that kind of visual expression yeah. that I haven't been doing for years, except maybe on an album cover or something. Now I have an outlet for that. And not only is it an outlet, but they'll play it to the public. Mm -hmm. It's not like, well, I can kind of go home and kind of paint and draw. Right. I could do that anyway. But now you could do this, do this stuff and, and they play it everywhere. Uh, everybody didn't have cable TV then. So mainly people saw it in bars and clubs where they would subscribe to cable and they'd be playing music videos all the time. Uh, so that one and a few others that we did, it really helped get some of those songs over. Well, I think, interesting. correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe, because I was going back watching a few of the, on YouTube, a few of the music videos to prep for this. I think This Must Be The Place was a, was a cool one in terms of the music video, but it's interesting because that one didn't catch on for a while, right? It was not. No, a that was not a popular one um, as a music video. Or even as a, a song right away, right? No, it wasn't a, a single. I don't, don't recall it being a single, but people really started to latch onto it because it was an unusual love song. Uh, it was a love song that wasn't like filled with cliches that... People had been here using a million times. And so people started to latch on to it. And then we'd hear, you know, 
oh yeah, you know, I had played this at my wedding yes, and yeah. all that. And you go, wow, okay. <laughs> it's filtering out there right. despite not really being like a radio single and all that. So it was realized, oh, there's other ways of things getting across. You never know what it's going to be. It wasn't the video. It wasn't the radio. It was just, it fit in to a moment or a feeling in people's lives, I yeah. guess. Last two case studies, if I can, if I can present these, and she was, I guess there's there's the uh, an element of LSD there, but what was the, the where did that come from, right? What was the what was the spark of the idea? I had a friend in high school, and she told me that she told me that she used to take LSD and go lie out in the field near the Yoo-Hoo chocolate drink factory. <laughs> And I didn't do indulge, yeah. but she was a wonderful person, very positive all the time. And, and I just thought, so I just took that as an inspiration and imagined this person kind of having an out-of-body experience and floating up in their, you know, in their mind at least. Uh, yes. And yeah, so there's a little bit of mention of, yeah, being by the factory and hearing the highway, which it was right near the highway. Um, oh, that's so awesome. it just it was pretty literal from there. And she was lying in the grass, and she could hear the highway breathing, and she could see an earbud factory. She's making sure she is not dreaming. Last one I'll, I'll bother you about is Road to Nowhere. Any any kind of uh, story behind that one that you can share? Mm, no, except uh, <laughs> uh, the flight attendant on the flight when I came out here. This trip. This trip came up to me and said, you know, my my son really loves that song, but he's really he's kind of conflicted about the words, uh, trying to figure out what does it mean, right. what does it mean, uh, and he kind of goes. You see, he, she said he goes on and on, and I'm trying to, to kind of figure out what is this song about. And I said to her, I think the song it, it's it works because. The music is positive and uplifting and feels good. The lyrics are kind of, this is the reality of it. Right. We're all, <laughs> you know, we're all going to die, right. basically. And, uh, <laughs> but, the mu but the music makes you feel good. Right. And I thought, that's what music can do. Yes. Can have like two opposing ideas at the same time. And there's something that's, that's kind of life sometimes.
only other song that immediately comes to mind sort of like that is uh, Sting, I'll Be Watching You. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's a little menacing. but It's, it's really <laughs> menacing when you look at the words, yes. Now, you said in an interview earlier this year, quote, I've always been a little wary of being too successful. It's nice to be successful. It's nice to be liked. But I remember with Talking Heads, we started playing really big venues, doing stadiums and things like that. And I started finding it very impersonal, close quote. So I guess I wonder, was that a major contributor in terms of you guys kind of growing apart and you wanting to do other things or what would you, just cause there's, everybody's got a theory, everybody's got a, a storyline of what they think happened uh, to lead to 1991 where, where that was the end of the band. But I, I guess what is the correct story? Oh, well, there's a lot of different factors involved in why, you know, why a band, kind of reaches the end of the road. That would have been one of them. I think there's some some of the others probably loved the idea that we were getting more popular, we were going to play to arenas or whatever like that. And I was finding it a little bit of a treadmill and, and I, my heart wasn't in it. But, you know, the, the money was good and the, mm -hmm. the connection with an audience was good. There were other things... Um, the old line that gets used a lot by a lot of people is so musical differences. <laughs> and, you know, and we, we didn't always have musical differences, but uh, there was a period where I was starting to listen to a lot of Latin music around New York because there were a lot of Latin clubs downtown, mm -hmm. right, you know, right next to the rock clubs or other clubs. And, uh, yeah, I became very enamored of that music and wanted to work with those, some of those musicians, which I eventually did. But that was, yeah, so that was a, a big musical change of direction. Mm -hmm. Although at the time, I remember the record company said, David, I've listened to those songs. They could have been Talking Head songs. <laughs> and I thought, mm, you know, okay, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Well, I, in fact, just aside from local things that you were listening to, wasn't there something when... In 86, you go and make a film, True Stories at that time. Uh, True Stories was the film you made. But there was something about, I guess, being in San Francisco and discovering records from around the world that also maybe piqued that interest. Absolutely. Um, so in San Francisco, doing post-production on, on True Stories and for the, a lot of the sound mixing and a lot of that kind of thing, I didn't have to be there for... The mornings. I had my mornings free. So I'd go down to Tower Records and browse through the racks and uh, pull out some records that had interesting covers. Artists I didn't know anything about. I remember picking out some Latin records and some Brazilian records and this and that. You don't know what, there was no internet. There was no way to find out who is this artist? What kind of music is this? Am I going to like this? It was, it was complete. Crapshoot. Yeah. Uh, but some, some of them I really, really liked. And then I'd go, you know, back the next, next day, the next morning and go, I'm going to get some more by that person, see what their other ones are like. I was staying at a, a kind of house that had a record player in it so I could come back and put the record on and go, oh, that's really nice. Let's go get another one by them. Right. Uh, and so this was... Brazilian music, Cuban music. Yeah, it was made music. Brazilian, a little bit of Cuban, some salsa, 
Yeah. And in fact, just the other thing that I think is really uh, one of numerous things that's distinguished the work since you began the solo career is just a the the interest in and and um, inclusion of all of these influences right from around the world in your music, but also collaborations. I think you were the last person to collaborate with Selena, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then everyone I, from I, Fat Boy Slim to yes, um, yeah, yeah. I've been teased about collaborating with everyone, but <laughs> I find it really stimulating. Yeah. Sometimes it fails. Sometimes you end up with something that's just like uh, we didn't really click. <laughs> But um, sometimes it, you really get something that you never would have gotten before. Yeah. It kind of pushes you to do something a little bit different. That was an interesting one. The, the uh, song with Selena was done for a film called Don Juan de Marco. Yeah, Brando, right? Yeah, it was Brando and Johnny Depp. Yeah, right. And I, I thought, wow, okay, okay. They had a scene where I think they go into a Latin... Uh, dance club and they wanted to have some music playing but they wanted it to be like some Latin music but somebody recognizable to help an audience yes. kind of find a way <laughs> in so they thought oh let's try David Byrne he you know he, do he does that kind of thing so it was their idea and I knew who Selena was yeah. and I said absolutely I'm, I'm down for this in fact I have kind of the beginnings of a song which I would like to then, I'll just send it to her in Texas and to her people and let's see where that goes. Yeah, so <laughs> I did not go, I never met her. I, oh, really? No, no, we all talked on the phone. Oh, my goodness. We all talked on the phone and I sent the multi-track tape, which is a big thing. Yeah. I mean, there was, what's it like? It's like, <laughs> like a, a laptop. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's like a, maybe a stack of like three laptops. Yeah, right, right. Something like that. It's about that size. <laughs> and you, you send that. And then she recorded her vocal basically as an answer to my vocal. It's sort of like what you were doing when you were first experimenting as a kid, right? With yeah. taping over things. Yes. Yeah, so she recorded as an answer to my vocal. And it was just, it was to me, it was just magical. Yeah. She brought a whole kind of heart and emotion to it. I thought the song was very tender and emotional to begin with, but she kind of lifted it to this ecstatic level that I just thought, wow, I'm really happy with this. at all she she could do she, she's making kind of this kind of um kind of cumbia uh, kind of pop uh -huh. i guess you would call it and she's incredibly successful but i thought she could stretch out and really really be something incredible uh -huh. well so there's a song that was used for a movie the movie never used it. Never used it? <laughs> they never used it. After all that, well, they're well, lost. Well, thank you for connecting me, but they never used it. I got it back. And But it's yeah. interesting, though, the role that movies have played throughout your career, because it obviously it's going to connect us up to everything, everywhere, all at once. Where so you here we go. We're getting to that now. Well, for sure. But I just want to also <laughs> note that 
You, this goes back more than 35 years. Last Emperor is, you got your Oscar for The Last Emperor. That was a while back, yeah. And you've often had music featured in movies. And I guess I wonder, what is that process like? Do you need to see a script? Do you need to see visuals? Do you not need to see anything to, um, how do you, like, let's take as a case study, Everything Everywhere All at Once. What, what, was, what information did you have when you went to work on that? They were very generous. They approached me, and I'd seen the Daniels' previous movie, A Swiss Army Man. Yes, a.k.a. the Farting Corpse movie. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I just thought, okay, what are these guys doing next? And I knew the folks from, uh, the guys from Son Lux. Uh, I knew their management and record company guy and whatever. I, I knew them. I'd seen them live, and we'd kind of, you know, in the past corresponded. Uh, so... It was a combination of the movie and the Son Lux people reaching out to me and going, we're, score, we're going to score this movie, but we want a song for the end. And, you know, I would have said yes right then, but they were just like, oh, no, 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 we're going to send you a rough cut of the movie you gotta, so you can see what this is about, and which they did. And I was just, <laughs> it didn't have all the special effects, right. no music in it, all that, but... You know, seeing that movie without any warning <laughs> or, you know, no preparation of what the hell you're getting yourself into. Right. I remember watching like the first 20 minutes and going, interesting. They've gone and they've done like a uh, an Asian domestic drama. <laughs> <laughs> With elements of kung fu and everything but it, no, else. None of that had come in. The first, oh, okay. In the first 20 minutes, it was all the family in the laundromat uh, and... <laughs> the woman squabbling over their tax returns yeah. and, and the daughter fighting with the mom and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. It's, it's, it's really well done, but it's, you know, it's, this is what it is. And then all of a sudden, yeah. boom, 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 you're like in another dimension. And then you see what made them think of you. Yeah. Yeah. And you go, oh, here we go. Um, and I remember responding to them and saying, I think the song at the end should put a pin in how emotionally touching the movie is. That's not what people are going to, it's not the first thing people are going to think. They're going to think, oh, what a weird freak out this is, <laughs> which it is. But right. I said, but under all that, there's a lot of heart to it. Right. And it's very moving and touching. And I said, that's what you want to let people walk out with, not how weird it is. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's, that was my thought to them. They came back with some lyrics and, and a, a bit of a melody uh, and said, we'd like you to do it as a duet with Mitski. I was going to ask, did you guys know each other? No. Okay. Uh, I was a big fan. Mm -hmm. um, I thought, again, I just said, oh, yeah, yeah. in a minute. Um, how do you want to do this? So, <laughs> so they gave her the track with with the melody words that they'd written. And, and, and I said, okay. She did her vocal, which was gorgeous, mm -hmm. gorgeous. And uh, I thought, oh, what am I supposed to do now? <laughs> Where does this leave me? Right. <laughs> I mean, the obvious thing was, okay, I'll do harmonies. Right. We'll do it like a duet where I sing harmonies right. with her, right. which I did in some parts. But I, but. They suggested, and at first I thought, really? How am I going to do that? 
this is maybe you can work sing in between her lines, kind of what Selena did. Yeah, right. With with my song, maybe you can sing in between her lines. So I set to work writing a kind of counter melody to what she did, and writing new words that kind of answered and complemented. Is that what she's harder than just coming up with? your own in individual lyrics when you're having to essentially answer, not, excuse me, not like, you know what I mean? Starting from scratch versus call and response. I think it's always easier when there's something there to work with. Okay. A blank piece of paper is the hardest. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, this was a real puzzle problem. Mm -hmm. It was not totally easy because it's like, okay, you got to find a melody that doesn't encroach on her stuff. You don't want to be singing on top of her so that people are trying to hear two different things right. at the same time. But you, it, one needs to feel natural, and so maybe there's like a tiny little overlap. So, yeah. It is so a puzzle. It wow. was a puzzle. It was a real puzzle. I had to try it different ways and then submit it and go, here's what I, here's what I got. Does this work for you? And then there's other parts where they, were, they had these vocal things that didn't have any words to them, and I said, no, I, I, can, I can come up with words for those that actually fit the song. From destiny, I choose you and you choose me. Not only what we saw, not only what we show. So the finished product of the song and how it factors into the film, which is now the highest grossing movie in the history of A24, I guess I wonder when you see how it how it's all incorporated, what's your what's your take? It's really refreshing to see that that movie did as well as it did and continues to do. And that, yeah, uh, <laughs> I, you know, I have friends, you know, come up to me and go, oh, I saw this movie. You got to see this. You got to see this movie. Yeah. Which is kind of the reaction that people have. And I go, um, yeah, I wrote a song. <laughs> you know, Co-wrote a song at the end of it. Right. Oh. <laughs> after the after all the mental gymnastics that movie puts you through by that point, they probably didn't even realize, you know, they're, they're, they're didn't realize who they're listening to. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, but that's the kind of reaction that movie gets. It was kind of word of mouth. People just going, you know, their jaw on their floor, yeah, right. on the floor going, you got to see this. <laughs> <laughs> I have uh, just three last quick questions for you, if I may. Um, these are sort of just big picture, random things that I know everybody always asks, but I, I'm very curious what the latest, uh, what your latest feelings are on this. Obviously, you've had, you've had and are continuing to have this incredible post Talking Heads career, but is there, the last time the four of you guys were together was 2002, 20 years ago for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. What percentage chance is there that we will ever see the four of you together playing again? Playing together again? No, no. That's not really not going to happen. I really, I'm very proud of what we did. Uh, we're working together on a kind of re-release schedule of a24 is doing Stop Making Sense. Going to do that. Yeah. Oh, you're going to... So the, the four of you are in touch on that. Yeah, we're in touch on that. There's 
the record label is re-releasing records on vinyl and this, you know, doing all that kind of thing. Wow. So we're, yeah, we have a good relationship as far as working the catalog and working for the stuff that we have, but uh, we're not going to perform together. Okay, next question. What's it like, I guess that you and, and Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin have basically are the two most kind of uh, famous examples of somebody who continues to perform songs from the band they used to be part of. What's it like when you go back and revisit songs from that era today when you're performing them? Some of them hold up, not all. That would be true for anything. Uh, Some of them hold up really well. And the challenge, and it's not really that much of a challenge, is to rework the arrangements and sounds and stuff so they sound fresh, they sound contemporary, they fit the band that I'm performing with at the time, like with the American Utopia Utopia show that we did. If you didn't know which songs were older songs and which ones were new songs, you wouldn't know the difference. Oh, and people today often discover them not knowing that they're... Yeah. Oh, that. Wait a minute. That's an old song. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and you know, I think the influence of that era of work, you must get a kick out of seeing that from everything from Radiohead is named after one of your songs to uh, Selena Gomez. I guess borrowing. What do you say? Oh, like baseline from so baseline groove from Psycho, uh, Psycho Killer. Killer. Yeah. yeah, Jay Z had done that with once from Once in a Lifetime. I think Timothy Chalamet wears a Talking Heads shirt in Call Me by Your Name. I mean, <laughs> we could go on forever. Is uh, that what do you make of that? Oh, it's really flattering. Of course, it's really flattering. Uh, yes, and it's really exciting that you see kind of a younger audience discovering some of the material. And that it has some relevance to them. That's, I mean, that's that's wonderful. That it's not like, oh, you know, that's dad dad's music. <laughs> it's no, it's it seems to have relevance to yeah. people kind of over and over again. Last question, and I so appreciate it. this has been amazing. Just this is probably an impossible question, like asking somebody to pick their favorite child or something. But just for the for the arg- sake of the argument, if the world was you know, on fire and there was only one way to save, if there was a way to save only one song that you've worked on, what is the song that you would most want to save? There's, <laughs> wow, that's really hard. That's really hard. Um, probably like most artists would say, it's probably something that I've worked on recently. You know, it's like what it was recently. Or you pick something, you pick what I think uh, Tom Waits may be referred to as the orphans. <laughs> uh, you pick the ones that seem to ha- need a little extra love. And um, I remember there's one from, uh, I think it's from the record I did with St. Vincent. Mm-hmm. One is called Outside of Space and Time. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, a, a love song. Um, and I thought, oh, that's one of the m- most beautiful melodies I've ever written. But it kind of doesn't fit anywhere. Uh, but, you know, I thought, oh, I'm really proud of that. Uh, 
maybe people will discover that someday. <laughs> well, we'll uh, this will point them towards it. So, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I thank can't you. tell you. So all the music and then this, it's it's been really special. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.